0: Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to read that whole chapter. I invite you to follow along in your own Bible. Revelation chapter 12. Let's listen to the word of God being read. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she, has a, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient servant who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We'll end it there. Well, interesting passage, isn't it? Let's pray, and we'll ask for the Lord's help in this time. Father in heaven, this is your word. It's living and active. It is for us. And God, we know we need it. It is our daily bread. It is food for our souls. It makes us wise to salvation. And so, Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to discern what we need to understand, uh, that we would, uh, as a result of ruminating on this truth, be made more like Christ. We want his sanctifying work in our lives. We want to be prepared for what we will face in this life. And Lord, I ask that you would grant me grace to proclaim uh, what is only helpful for your people to be faithful to this truth. And Lord, if there's something that is uh, unhelpful, that like chaff in the wind, that you just cause it to blow away. We need your spirit to speak through the voice of a mere man and accomplish what I cannot. So we ask for that in Christ's name, amen. Well, reading this together, of course, it is a quite a fantastic story, and uh, there's been a lot of debate about what this means. I'll remind you that this whole book, the Revelation, is was given to the apostle John, and he was told to show him what must soon take place. And it begins with some introductions, and uh, it's it's a it's formed as a letter, and then there's seven letters to seven actual churches, which I take to be symbolic of all churches. The overarching message to those churches and then ultimately to us by extension is a call to faithfulness and endurance, a call for the people of God to faithfulness and endurance. And we saw that there was seven seals, seven trumpets depicting the, the judgment that befalls the earth in a period of time that, that is between the first and and second advents of Christ, so when he was born, lived, died, raised, and ascended to heaven, and the anticipated time of his return at the end of the age, the first and second advent. So this, these seals, these trumpets, the, 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 the judgment is depicting what happens in that time. And so, so we're in it. It's an assurance as well to the church that while there will be physical persecution and even death, God's people will be spiritually protected. Now, as we uh, begin to look at, at chapter 12 here, uh, it begins what are what many commentarians have described as seven symbolic histories. Again, that number seven repeated. Um, that number seven being the number of divine completion. So so when we take it, if there are seven symbolic histories, what we're getting here is is the whole story. It's the the complete picture in in symbolic histories that are presented before us. Now, in the passage that we read, we're introduced to two signs, a sign. A sign by its very definition is, is a thing that points to something else. Maybe a little bit of a lame example, but I I, I think of how to illustrate this. If you invite someone to your house and you give them the address, when they arrive to find the house number on your mailbox next to the road, they don't stand around it thinking that they're somehow visiting with you. And we get that, right? They're not. It's pointing to the right place, but it isn't the place. In the same way, I would suggest that we don't look to a biblical sign like it's the thing itself. I don't expect in history to see an actual woman adorned or a dragon as described in the vision. Rather, these signs, they depict something much greater. And what John is being shown, I would also suggest, and I think we can see this very clearly, that what he is being shown and what he writes is is soaked in Old Testament prophetic revelations. So we see that language from the prophets kind of being brought forward into into revelation. Now for our study this morning, here's here's what I see as we unpack this together. So this is where we'll, we'll kind of Uh, take our our understanding and application. First, I want you to notice there's a cosmic conflict. That's the first thing to notice, a cosmic conflict. Second, and we can see this in the text, the accuser is defeated. The accuser is defeated. And third, God's people are spiritually protected. So there's the three points that I'm uh, focusing on this morning from this passage. First of all, a cosmic conflict. We understand this whether in it's marriage or friendship, business, politics, or even even the church. Conflict happens, we know this, when there are opposing ideas, when there are different objectives or desires or values. And oftentimes, the conflicts we experience, they're often, and they should be resolvable through negotiation and, and mutual understanding. And certainly that that is to be the case in, in marriage. But we also know this, that there are some kinds of conflicts that are that are absolutely irreconcilable because they deal with absolutes. They deal with absolutes. And in those kinds of conflicts, someone must win and the other will lose. That's the kind of conflict depicted here in chapter 12. This isn't an isolated scuffle. This is describing a conflict that encompasses the entirety of creation. It is Cosmic. So let's look at the details of of the signs. First of all, this, the first sign. What we see here is a, what John sees, is a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And she's wearing a crown of 12 stars. Now That's an odd thing to see. So what is this representing? And I would suggest to you that, that we, we get an idea what this deals with, and the 12 is important, because if we look back at Genesis chapter 37, Joseph, the son of Jacob, had a dream where he, he, he dreamt about the, the, the sun and the moon and, and, and stars, and they were, they were ultimately bowing down to him as one of the stars because he would ultimately be the rescuer. This is really an imagery of representing this, the 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 woman with the crown is is imagery representing the people of God, Israel. And and just the, the moon and the, the sun, you might wonder about that. The high priest's garment, according to Josephus, Josephus and Philo, there were there were precious twelve precious stones on that high priest's garment. But on the on the shoulder there was the sun and the moon, other two other emeralds, two other uh, precious stones. So this again, this woman represents the whole people of God. And that would say Old Testament and New Testament saints, all those who have believed in God, to whom righteousness was credited because of their faith. Now we see in, this, in this, this picture here, in this sign, that the woman is in labor. It's hard labor. Now that may be typical of all labor. I cannot speak to personally knowing, but I've observed my wife. Okay, labor is hard. But it seems like this kind of labor is particularly hard. She sees a hard labor, and what that labor does is it represents the the great persecution that has come upon the people of God, leading up to the birth of the promised Messiah, the Christ. And we know that the male child born to this woman is the Christ, and we're told that in verses five and ten. And again, this labor and this waiting for for the child to be born, the anticipation, the difficulty coming upon Israel. It's a theme we can find in the Old Testament. Again, you could, if you're taking notes, you can look up uh, Micah 5, 2 through 5, Isaiah 54, 1 through 4. But I'll read one example for you in Isaiah 66, verse 7. Listen to this. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. That idea of of pain in childbirth and anticipation. And we're told that this is the male child who will rule with a rod of iron. Again, an image from the Old Testament. Now this ruling with a rod of iron, this will be repeated two more times in Revelation, but it comes if you look back at Psalm 2 verse 9. And what this describes is the assured victory of the Messiah. So this is all wrapped up here. I'll I'll, I'll read Psalm 2 9 for you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. Again, a promise to the Messiah. The Messiah will rule the nations. And it it says this, You shall break them, those opposing you, with a rod of iron, and shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Picture of the the conquering Messiah there wrapped up in this male child to be born of the woman. And, And what's being depicted here is that out of the people of God, I mean, some people are drawn. Well, this is Mary. This is the mother of Jesus. But more broadly, certainly she's included in that. But more broadly, it's the whole people of God. Where does the promise come from? It come. He comes from out of the people of God. Now the second sign, that's the dragon. Seven heads, ten horns. Ten. Sorry, seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. These diadems are are like uh, stolen. Uh, valor, like the, the captured crown from a, uh, uh, having conquered another kingdom, um, taking authority that isn't his. And it's a, it's a kind of a, uh, a symbolic counterfeit of, of the people of God. Anyway, uh, I would say that these numbers are symbolic of really of the, the, the totality of evil. And we're told here that this is the ancient serpent, this dragon, the ancient serpent. So we can, we're drawn back to the Garden of Eden who, who tempted Eve. The devil, Satan, verse 9. Again, the one who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. He's the one that possessed Cain to murder Abel. He is the one that, that, that influenced Pharaoh to kill the Hebrew boys. He's the one that, murd, uh, that, that moved Herod to murder the innocents in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth. He is the one that tempted Jesus in the wilderness. This is Satan. And we're told in this sign that he swept a third of the stars from the heavens. And that's symbolic of of Satan's opposition. The stars representing God's order and God's design. And this image of, of Satan sweeping a third of them out of heaven. Trying to disrupt God's order. Making a mess of whatever he does. So, the woman and the dragon, these two signs, what they do is they depict the aftermath of man's fall into sin. They depict what will happen over the entire arc of history as God ultimately revealed His plan to remedy that fall into sin and do that on man's behalf. And I want you to remember, if, you're, if you recall the 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 Genesis story. Remember what the Lord told the serpent. He told the serpent this in the hearing of Adam and Eve. We have it recorded. He tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity. Conflict. Conflict between the serpent, Satan, and Eve. And Eve being the mother of all the living, Eve's own offspring would experience those same temptations, but now stained by the inherited guilt of Adam and Eve. They would do that until the singular offspring, the male child born from Israel, who, though wounded in his heel, would bring a crushing bruise to the serpent's head. Now, we're going to get to how that death blow is depicted in a moment. Just understand this. If you've been set apart by God through faith in Christ, you are in that cosmic battle. If you've been set apart, you are in that cosmic battle. And what I mean by set apart, if you've put your faith in Christ as the Son of God, if you've trusted that his death on the cross was for you, that that act all by itself, with no effort on your part, with no goodness on your part, if you've trusted what Christ has accomplished to pay for your sin, dying, taking it into the tomb, leaving it there and rising again, if you've trusted that, You've trusted that. It means you're set apart by God. He, he's opened your eyes to that reality, that truth. And if that's you, you're in the conflict. We read this together. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul exhorted his readers to be prepared to understand the nature of the conflict. He said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, it's a spiritual conflict. You're in it. Now Satan, he is the opposite of God. Not an equal opposite by any stretch. Infinitely. Less. We understand that. But he is an opposite in the sense that he is the adversary of God and he is the adversary of God's people. So, so you understand, I hope you understand this, where Satan, sorry, where God creates, Satan destroys. God brings order out of chaos, Satan brings chaos. God unifies together in him, ultimately through Christ. Satan sows dissension and division. God seeks our own good by teaching us to seek his glory. Satan wants you to think your glory is the best thing. God says, I am. Satan wants you to say, I am what I say I am. God is pure being. Satan is counterfeit. God reveals himself in Christ. Satan sets up anti-Christs. God welcomes the humble. Satan promotes pride. God speaks truth. Satan speaks lies. Understand this. Behind, behind every vile, divisive, abusive, selfish, prideful human act is Satan wringing his hands in delight. The temptation to sin that you and I face every single day is just a small Part of the cosmic battle. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan himself is in your ear tempting you every time. That's not saying that. He doesn't have to be. Sin is like a spiritual cancer. That is exactly what it is. The lie believed and acted upon begets more and more lies until it infects everything, and we can see how the lies have infected our culture. Up becomes down, left becomes right, lie becomes my truth. Now let me say this. If you are unaware of the conflict, if you're oblivious to the conflict, I want to challenge you. It may be that you are in the camp of the enemy. I don't know your heart but you need to look at your own heart. If you don't see the conflict, if you don't think it's a big deal, the only way to win the battle is to combat the lies of Satan with the truth of God's word. Brothers and sisters, I hope you know this. When the Holy Spirit breathed new life into you, you, at that moment, you saw Christ for who he is. Those blinders came off. You saw it. And you said, I, I need that. And the blinders about everything else, they it it, it came off. And then as you continue to grow, abiding, as it says in, in the gospel, abiding in the word of Christ, you, you discover you know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's John 8, 32. And Jesus promised that we would prevail in the conflict. I I have this plaque on my wall. It was carved by the late Don Frazee. Uh, Ruth, his widow, is here. And I treasure that because Don carved it into it. The words of John 15, 7. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you. You know, on the surface, it sounds like this carte blanche. You can ask God for whatever you want. But, but the provision here is if my word abides in you. Abiding in the word of God. See, our desires informed and conformed to the word of God. They will be granted so that we can be truly free. And not free of the conflict, but free to endure the conflict so we can pray this way and know that God will give it. God, grant me the grace to discern good from evil. God, grant me strength to resist temptation. God, be gracious to me and bless me that I would love you, heart, soul, and strength. God, remind me of your word to refute the lies. God, give me grace to be faithful even unto death. It's a cosmic conflict. Well, the next thing that we see in this vision that the accuser is defeated, the accuser is defeated. Now, how do you defeat your enemy? In friendly battles like sports, you get more points, right? Or in golf, fewer, (laughs) right? In a war, it's more serious now, you hold your territory or you gain more. And heaven forbid any of you have had to do this, but perhaps some of you had, in hand-to-hand combat, the one who dies is defeated, obviously. Now looking at our text, there's something that's, that's very counterintuitive about how the accuser, Satan, is defeated. And even though it's not explicitly stated, what's implied in, in what John sees, it's victory, but it initially looks like defeat. Now, knowing that the male child, again, this is depicting Christ, so the woman who is in hard labor, that's the persecution on the people of God, now she's about to give birth. Knowing that this male child... Christ is God's good plan to once again bring order out of this chaos caused by sin. The dragon, he is now hell-bent on destroying the child. So he's standing before the woman in labor, and he seeks, at the moment she gives birth, to devour this male child. That's verses 4 and 5. But we're told he's unable to do so because Christ is caught up to heaven. The male child is caught up to heaven. Now, again, John doesn't provide any details, only the result. Jesus is caught up to heaven. He's not devoured. Now, there's, some, there's a story behind this, of course. From the gospel, we know that the male child, of course, is Christ. We, now, we don't know what, what Satan knew in advance. But it seems to me that when Satan tempted Judas to give up Jesus to the religious authorities and so be offered up to be crucified, I think he thought he was thwarting God's saving plan. He was so motivated to have Jesus killed, tempting, the scriptures say, he entered Judas and tempted him to do it. And he gave in. Now that betrayal of Jesus led to the cross. We know the story. Now, but if we didn't, right, if we didn't know the story, would that not look like a defeat for Christ? He died, and and certainly the disciples thought so. They left dejected now they were elated when they saw him raised but initially they were dejected it's like well that's over defeat now i don't doubt as well that satan knew what jesus declared in advance of his death right jesus said he would suffer and die and rise that thought had to be on satan's mind but i can only conclude here that that it was satan's hellish hubris that blinded him to what Jesus would accomplish in his death. An apparent victory for the dragon, for Satan, proved to be his undoing as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. Now, now the the fight, he's unable to get the male child and devour him. After Christ is caught up into heaven, the vision continues. It describes this war in heaven. Now, Now, we're brought a new character here. We have the picture of Michael, and his angels, on behalf of Christ, fighting against the dragon and his angels. Where does that come from? Well, That's another Old Testament image. And you can look back in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. There, Michael is mentioned. He is described as a chief prince. He battles against the demonic influence over the kingdom of Persia. So John, in his vision, is either being given this, and it's stuff that Daniel was shown, or he sees something and says, I think that's Michael. However it comes, it comes to us, and and these are Old Testament imagery that is brought forward. Now, we wonder, I think, what is the nature of the battle, okay? So they're making war. We're not told what the nature of the battle is, only what it seems to accomplish. But I would suggest to you that it has to do with the kind of power that the dragon has. So the dragon, the devil, the ancient serpent Satan. He's described in verse 9. You look at verse 9, the deceiver of the whole world. Now, we said earlier, he is the adversary. That is to say, he's the opposer of God who is truth. So if we think about what's the main destructive power that Satan has? It's the power of the lie. It's the power of the lie when the lie is believed. Remember, he didn't. Forced the fruit into Eve's face, he said, What do you think? Could make you like God. How about that? The only power he has is to lie. And that power is given actuality when the lie is believed. Remember how how, and that regarding Satan, remember how Jesus confronted the Pharisees that had opposed. He, he's, he's now in this battle with them, right? He says to them, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Again, did he, did he take up the, the, the stick or the knife and, 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 and put it to Abel? No, he just said to Cain, look at your brother. Huh. Cain killed his brother, and yet he's called a murderer because he lies, right? So getting back to the verse, he was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That is who this is. He is the deceiver of the whole world. And so like he did with Adam and Eve, Satan infects people by convincing them to believe and act on lies. That's every single sin. You believed and acted on a lie. And know this, every time you sin, it's because you were duped. You believed a lie. And Satan gets perverse pleasure out of that because while he has no power to directly destroy life, I don't believe he does, he knows That all that is corrupted by sin has to be judged by God who is just. He knows that. He knows he's under judgment. Verse 10, he's called the accuser of the brothers. So Satan knows that God's going to judge sin because he's under judgment. He knows it. When people sin, let me say it this way. Satan does the only true thing that he can do. So when people sin, he does the only true thing that he can do. He points it out to God and then appeals to God's righteous character to act. So having deceived the man, he runs back to God with the news. Standing there, he says, and I'll use myself as an example, look at what John did. Look at how he's unkind. Look look at how he acted selfishly, or out of pride. Look at how he was impatient with that person. God? He's behaving badly. you get got to deal with that. He's unrighteous. And the text tells us he does this night and day before God. Incidentally, that's what he was trying to do with Job. He wanted Job to curse God for his troubles unleashed on him. And if God, sorry, if Job had cursed God, God would have to judge him. Job's wife even understood this. She said to him, look, you're, you're a mess. Just curse God and die. Bad advice. Now, in verse 9, John is now shown that Satan loses this battle and he's thrown down to earth. But how? What's, again, the nature of the battle? And it's what was accomplished at the cross. And I want to remind you what Jesus said as he anticipated his own death. This is John um, 21, I think. Yes, 31 to 32. Now, he says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out and i when i'm lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself now i can only conclude that satan has no clue uh, or real understanding about what is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement to get theological with you right and that was the very reason he was cast down it was the doctrine of substitutionary atonement i think satan just missed the boat on that one he had no clue It's such a glorious doctrine. You'll see how this battle was won. It's explained in Colossians 2, verse 13 through 15. Listen, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you were dead. God made alive. Now, you were dead because you broke the law. You were dead because you sinned against God. You were dead because you could not be righteous. You were dead, spiritually dead, only prone to sin. But then it says this, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So made alive with Christ, having forgiven. So in love, God made this decision to show mercy rather than to judge. So how did God forgive and make his own people spiritually alive? Verse 14 of Colossians 2, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And here's, the, here's the, 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 the judicial aspect of it. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And here's what happened. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So soon as your sin was put on Christ as soon as it was nailed to the cross, as soon as Jesus' body was taken down and buried in the tomb, there went your sin, your guilt, your shame. So the accuser walks into the presence of God and said, hey, look at John. He's such a failure. God says, but my son, it's in the grave. And what can he say? He's shut up. He's silenced. And that's how he's thrown down to the earth. And now he's like, he's lost. The accuser has been defeated. And so when Christ was raised from the grave, all who have trusted in him are made spiritually alive. In anticipation of a physical resurrection, yes, but we are spiritually alive, Colossians 3, 1 through 3. So there is now no condemnation, Romans 8.1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No record. It's over. It's done. It's buried. No shame. No guilt. Acceptable to God. Gloriously perfected, justified in His sight. And we know ourselves. We know. We still fall short. But we have this avenue brothers and sisters, when we do sin, because the Apostle John assumes that in his first letter. When you sin, well, first of all, if you say you have no sin, you just can call God a liar, but but when you sin, if we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just. Faithful, he'll do it. Just, that's judicial. Why is he just? Jesus. Jesus. He nailed it to the cross. He's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness. So when you come before God in confession, what you're acknowledging is the transaction was already done. You're just keeping the the communication clean between you and your merciful, forgiving God. And you're claiming Christ every time you do. And get this. Now, again, we're talking about the defeat of Satan again. The ongoing evidence that Satan has been defeated is the example of people who, despite persecution or death, hold fast to Christ. It's a proof of his defeat. So think of this. When someone is insulted for the name of Christ, When someone is beaten for their faith in Jesus, when someone dies refusing to deny Christ, Satan gets smacked. He gets reminded of his doom. It's glorious. Jesus Christ proved through those he saves. This is what he actively does. Jesus Christ proves through those he saves, and it And each time stomps on the head of the serpent, reminding him of his fatal wound. Now, how do I conclude that? Look again at verse 11 and 12 in our text. And they have conquered him who, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. They have conquered him. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So every time you face down a persecution, someone mocking you, and do not deny Christ, it's like another kick in the serpent's head. It's beautiful. Think of that. Think of that when you're facing difficulty. Therefore rejoice, verse 12, O heavens and you who dwell in them. Those who dwell in heaven, those are the ones who have died in faith. They understand how Satan has been silenced. His accusing is is no longer relevant and it has no power. Pushing him back to the earth and the sea. So he's tossed out, he's cast out of heaven and all of his angels. And what he does, he comes to the earth and he bashes around creation. This is the dragon wreaking havoc. Because he knows his time is short. It's, it's, it's over. He's it's going to make a mess of things. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your, your enemy has been defeated. And like I said, he can, he can flail and tempt, and sometimes you may give in. But in Christ, the record of your debt, and even, listen, even for sins that you have not yet committed, that's been canceled. Another encouragement from Romans 8. Listen to this. If God is for us, proved in Christ, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's the part I want you to hear. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God. Who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That is glorious. No charge. if You're a child of God. So the dragon, the serpent, Satan, he's been thrown down. And in Christ, you are free. You are free from the grip and the consequence of sin. You are free to love God and serve others, free by the power of the Holy Spirit to grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. And if God calls you to it, free to suffer and even die for the testimony of Jesus. The accuser has been thrown down. Third. God's people are spiritually protected. God's people are spiritually protected. Now, verse 6, we're told here, after the Christ was taken up into heaven, John sees this, the woman, now she, again, representing the people of God, she flees to this wilderness where they are nursed for 1260 days. So we've seen this before, 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. This is half of seven. It's a symbolic number. It's symbolic for a time cut short. So if seven is the number of the completion, The midpoint is saying, enough, I'm I'm not giving you the whole deal, right? So it's a time cut short. It's this time between the first and second advents of Christ, between his birth, death, and resurrection, and his anticipated return. And we're told here that the woman finds herself in the wilderness, uh, which is a place prepared by God. Now, we skip down to verse 13. It describes this more fully. The woman is fleeing the serpent. So this serpent, this dragon, he is, he's making war on the woman, the people of God. He's, he's trying to make a mess of things because he's on earth, and, and the people of God that remain on earth, now he goes after them. But she's given wings of an eagle to escape, and where does she go? She goes to a wilderness. A wilderness was, and, and we're told there, a time times and half a time. So time, one times plus two Half a time, half. So there's three and a half, half of the seven. And we're told here in verse 14 that this wilderness is a place where the woman is nourished. So it's a wilderness, but it's a place of nourishment. So the serpent finds her there, attempts to destroy her with his deluge of water from his mouth. And perhaps it is a flood of lies. I don't know what it represents. But in the imagery here, the earth swallows up the, the flood that comes from the serpent's mouth. The torrent that might have killed her, the woman's protected. The people of God are protected. Now let's get back to the significance of the three and a half. So she's in the wilderness. She's there three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. 1260 days, 42 months. It's all uh, repeated. I'd suggest this comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, 23 through, through 27. There, the beast, an evil kingdom, will blaspheme God and persecute his saints. And here's the language for time, times, and half a time. Again, that imagery is drawn back. And it's the very same thing. This beast, this evil power, this source, this kingdom will blaspheme God and persecute his people. Again, three and a half. Symbolic of a time cut short. Symbolic of a time that God puts the boundary on. See, the the, the serpent doesn't have free reign to do this forever. What we're being told is like, it's limited. God knows. He's numbered the days. It's not literally three and a half years. Not literally 1,260 days. But representing a time, not the full amount that it could be. But God is saying, that's enough. Now, God's... uh, intervention on behalf of the woman, this further enrages the serpent, the dragon, and he makes war then on the rest of her offspring. And what that means is that he does not relent in seeking to destroy the people of God from generation to generation. He never takes the battle, the loss, and go, I guess I'm done. No, he just keeps fighting and flailing. And what that means is it's going to be unrelenting. But listen, whatever the threat from the dragon, whatever the threat from Satan, the serpent, this wilderness is a place of testing, yes, and also of spiritual protection. And I want to, again, another Old Testament imagery. That's what it was for the Israelites. Having been rescued from slavery in Egypt, where did they go? The wilderness. But what's important about the wilderness is God was with them there. Exodus 16.10, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. In the wilderness, God gave them manna. and fed them. He nourished them. In the wilderness, God gave them water from a rock. Exodus 17, he gave them in the wilderness, he gave them his law, his word, his promises. It was a place of danger, but because the Lord was with them, he protected them. And in that time, the Lord tested them, And refined them. And he made them ready. He made them ready to come into the land of promise. That's us. This is the wilderness. We're in the wilderness. This is the place that the Lord has prepared for us until Christ returns. And during this symbolic three and a half years, we will be tested. But we will be spiritually protected because God is with us. Just as Jesus promised his disciples in the Great Commission, I will be with you to the end of the age. Jesus assured his disciples that they could have peace even in the midst of persecution in the world. He said, you will have tribulation, but take heart. Take heart. It's okay. I've overcome the world. So brothers and sisters, we should not be complacent about this time. Opposition to the word of God we know, is slowly but surely intensifying. And we also know that in some places in this nation, and I know it's already happened in Canada, simply declaring what the Bible says about some things in the Bible that are very clear to us, very biological, about gender, homosexual behaviors, marriage, that's perceived to be hateful, and now against the law, punishable. But I'll remind you Peter's exhortation in his first letter. Beloved. Why? Because we're in the wilderness, time of testing, but protection. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. No surprise. God's Word tells us that trials are to be expected. For the people of God, trials are to be expected. But while we live in this wilderness waiting for Christ to return, we are spiritually protected. We are nourished. And we're nourished because Jesus understood what we would need. He said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The evil one's going to flail. But I've got you. Because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, we must. We must band together. We must physically, and I mean that, physically gather to be reminded that Christ is king and that Satan has been defeated. That's what we're doing here. You can't do that alone. And when the church gathers around the preaching and the teaching of God's word, the saints are equipped to endure whatever the dragon may hurl at us. Now, we'll see in the next chapter that he is diabolically clever, but that's for next week. So, do you know you're in a conflict? Christians, I think you feel it. You know it's happening. We have to be alert. There's a a deluge of lies, and the only remedy is to immerse yourself in the word of God and take refuge in truth. But while we do that, know this. Remind yourself that Satan, the accuser, has been defeated. He's been thrown down. Nothing at all can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And know this. When you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, it's like you're getting your kick in at the serpent's head. So like the, the disciples in the early church who rejoiced they were, that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ, look beyond the moment and see the strength that God gives you to endure that, that difficulty, that persecution, that whatever it is, and even death. No, you're just reminding the evil one that he's already doomed. And finally, while we live in this wilderness, we're waiting for Christ to return in power and glory. Know this, as you suffer for whatever reason, we get this, world isn't our home anymore. We're looking to a better land, a better kingdom, when Christ returns. But we will be brought there because we are protected spiritually. And I trust that that encourages your heart this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, grateful that you, um, you've given us this glimpse of history. And um, while we feel so small um, and insignificant in this, we, we realize that you are working out your plan, and you will bring us home someday. Till then, we ask that you would keep us faithful, give us endurance, keep us grounded in your truth, keep us proclaiming Christ and him crucified. And Lord, we'll, we'll look forward to that day when Christ returns and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. To your glory, Father. So we thank you and we pray in Christ's name.